invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 49 in the Pew Bibles, Genesis chapter 31. You know, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in this inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, and crossing the river, he headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You have deceived me, and you have carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. 
But if you find anyone who has your God, he shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? he asked Laban. What sin have I committed that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine, and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for twenty years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine, or about the children they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, Gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yeger Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galim. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galim. It was also called Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Of course, that's a, quite a lengthy chapter. It's, it's, a, it's narrative. It's not um, a, a, a scripture passage that is doing a lot of um, a teaching, per se, directly. Um, but um, I do think there are two elements about this passage that we could take to heart, take to mind. Um, and it kind of uh, is from this perspective. Uh, the lower story perspective, which is 
um, the human perspective, the human perspective of things in this story has a lot to do with Jacob and Jacob determining what God's will is for his life. What is God's will for his life? What is he called to do? Um, what's he supposed to do with what God has revealed to him, right? Um, that's the lower story, and that's what all of us often experience. We are seeking to know what God's will is for our lives and how we're t- called to pursue that. Um, and uh, the, the upper story, though, of this narrative here is that God is orchestrating these events. God is providentially and sovereignly making these things happen and come about. And what God is doing in this is that he is showing from his perspective that God is faithful to preserve, provide, and guide those who are his. Um, so in one sense, we on the lower story are seeking to know what God's will is for our lives. Um, and then in another sense, the upper story, God is providing for us. He is protecting us and he is guiding us because we belong to him uh, because we are his. So I'd like to uh, uh, do something a little bit different this morning with the passage. I basically would like to go through Genesis 31 uh, straight shot through and try to pull out those moments that talk about um, from the human perspective understanding and knowing what God's will is for our lives. How do we pursue that? Um, if you want to look at it from a biblical perspective, it would be like this. Romans 12 says, uh, we are to give our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, so that we might determine what God's will is for us. So that's what we're called to do, right? But earlier in Romans, Romans chapter 8, Paul said to all believers, uh, those who are foreknown are uh, called, those who called are predestined, those who are predestined uh, will be glorified. So we know, we know what God is going to do. God, is gonna, God has started us in our path of a journey called faith, and God is going to bring us faithfully to the end of that path of faith, Right? But we are walking it out, and our duty and our responsibility is not maybe to know every single minutia of detail about what that might look like and what job we might have and, and who we might marry and all these other things, right? But to offer our bodies as living sacrifices so that we might know God's perfect and pleasing will. So we're going to go through Genesis 31, uh, a straight sweep. We're just going to sort of describe the text for us looking at that aspect of uh, knowing God's will for us. And then at the end, we're going to pull out some of those details of um, God preserving, providing, and guiding those are His, those who are his. So let's look at this. Let's look at the first 21 verses or so. Um, this is when Jacob knows um, it's time to go home. And that's a good question. How do you know when it's, it's time to go home? How do you know when it's time to move on from the place that you're in? Um, Jacob had developed a desire to leave Haran for some time. In fact, we were told uh, previous to this Genesis 31 that uh, he wanted to go home um, and he told um, Laban that. And Laban said, oh no, I've been told that I'm being blessed because you're here. So what can I do? How can I pay you to keep you around? And what we find out from this story is that Jacob did stick around six more years past the, uh, the 14 years that he uh, agreed to work in order to um, have Jacob or have Laban's daughters as wives. Uh, seven more than he actually agreed to. 
Uh, but his circumstances had changed. When things seemed to be turning sour for him at Laban's, he could tell that this season was coming to an end. Jealousy, envy, pride, all these things were beginning to bubble up um, at Laban's household. Laban's sons were noticing that Jacob was becoming more blessed and Laban was uh, losing. And, and they were pointing the finger at this foreigner. Uh, at one point, Laban was prospering because of Jacob, but it seems now that Jacob is prospering at Laban's expense. So not only did he desire to go, but that time had come for him to do so. Um, God told him. He waited until God said, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So he waited until God said. Um, Arthur Pink, commenting on this passage, speaks of these three things. Um, that you know when the circumstances have changed, that you know uh, when you have a desire, and that you know when God has revealed it to you. Arthur Pink said this, It is not always that God gives us a manifestation of these three principles, but whenever they do come and are evident, we may be sure of His will in any given circumstance. First, a definite conviction in our hearts that God desires us to take a certain course or do a certain thing. Second, the path he would have us take being indicated by outward circumstances which make it humanly possible or expedient that we should do it. Then third, after definitely waiting on God for it, some special word from the scriptures which is suited to our case and which by the Spirit bringing it manifestly to our notice while waiting for guidance is plainly a message from God to our individual heart. Thus may we be assured of God's will for us. The most important thing is to wait on God. So we must not only know the will of God, but once it is known to us, we must do something else. Um, when we know the will of God, we must do something else. We must actually do it. God has revealed his will to us so that we must then actually pursue it. That's why when these things converged, Jacob was on the move. He put his plan into action. He surmised that if he let Laban know, Laban would not let him leave so easily. He intended to leave in secret and informed his wives of this plan. They believed this was God's will for their family as well. And they agreed with Jacob about the character of their own father. Can you imagine? You sit down with your wife and say, hey, listen, we need to leave your father's house. All right, okay? This is not working out well. And they go, you're right. My father is a jerk. We need to leave. It's not a good testimony to Laban's character, is it? That his very own daughters are agreeing with Jacob about the way things have been handled, the way things have been treated. In fact, uh, they believe that, that, uh, that Laban has mistreated them personally as well in this. Henry Morris, writing on this, says that Rachel and Leah revealed in their words that he had long resented the way, that they had long resented the way their father had essentially sold them to Jacob. He had treated them as strangers or foreigners rather than as his own daughters. And this is the way that he surmised that, Henry Moore surmised that. The exorbitant price which Jacob had paid for them, 14 years of unpaid service to Laban, made them love Jacob but resent their father. Rather than treating this payment like a dowry to provide a financial base for his daughter's future well-being and security, as should have been done, he had devoured it all himself, using it probably to build up his own holdings and had given nothing to them personally. And they rightfully felt that since their husband had been responsible for the great prosperity of their father, and since this was in effect what Jacob had given in order to marry them, these possessions by all rights should have come to them 
though their decision—excuse me—though their decision was not based on the same high spiritual consideration as that of Jacob, they nevertheless realized it was of God, and therefore had confidence that whatever God had told Jacob to do was the thing that Jacob should do. They were ready to to go, and so Jacob was the one vindicated before his family. He was the one whose actions had been shown as upright. And so they were ready to follow him, to become strangers in a strange land, to separate from the family of Laban and become inheritors of the covenant promise. And so Jacob hatches this plan, and that's what they do. They hit the road. Verses 22 through 55 describe uh, Jacob's escape plan. Uh, Jacob leaves, and it's three days before Laban realizes it. He decides to do it when Laban is out uh, shearing the flock, which means he's distracted, he's busy. And Jacob has a head start, but eventually Laban catches up. And if this were a movie, this would be the high point of the tension in the movie. Uh, the reader should feel like this could go poorly, that, that, that Laban is chasing after Jacob, and uh, he's probably got armed men with him, much like Abraham uh, chased after uh, the... Um, the foreign kings to uh, capture back his, um, his uh, um, nephew, Lot. Um, this is what Laban is doing. He's pursuing him, right? Um, but what we read here is that God comes to Laban in a dream and basically says, don't mess with him. He's mine. Don't mess with him. And when they finally come face to face, sparks are flying and violence you could see could break out at, at every moment. But what, what you sort of get, rather, is that Laban is upset, and he's trying to find some way to pin something on Jacob, um, but it's a very deflated attempt. Uh, he begins, Laban begins on a, a note of personal offense. His pride has been wounded, verses 26 through 28. He says, you've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives and war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? Yeah, like that's what you would have done, right? Um, You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You've done a foolish thing. You know, and then this is what he says. He says, I could harm you. I have the power to harm you, but I'm not gonna. Because God said so, and I don't want to mess with God. So, um, he does the one thing that he can do, and he makes this accusation. Um, but my household gods have been stolen. Why have you done that? Well, we find out that Rachel did this without Jacob's knowledge. And so the tensions get even higher because it's sort of like Saul said, if I find out the one person who ate when I said nobody could eat when we're in this battle, that guy is dead. Oh, Saul, by the way, that just happens to be your son. Um, so that's what, that's what Jacob does. If you can find anybody who has stolen something that belongs to you, that guy is dead. Oh, by the way, Jacob, that's your wife, Rachel. <laughs> she did that. And so there's this uh, shifting through all of Jacob's things, all the tents, and you finally come to the last tent, Rachel's tent, right? And she, she devises this plan. She's going to basically sit on these household gods and then um, say the reason why she can't get up is because it's, it's that time of the month. It's that time of the month for her as a woman. Um, and, of course, every guy knows this. If a woman says that, then we just say, okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to, how long do you have to be married before you'll go to the store and, and get products, right? It, it, it's, uh, it's something of, a, of an embarrassment for men for whatever reason, even though it's something that's natural. But um, Rachel, she says, okay, this is the reason why I can't get up. And, um, and, and, and so the, the discovery doesn't happen. We don't know. And Laban never finds out that Rachel stole these household gods. Um, and at this point, though, after Laban has chased him down a three-day journey, has caught up to him, has yelled at him about how mean he was to just run off and, and not let him say goodbye to his daughters and to his grandkids and, and, and all of this, Jacob has just had enough. And he gives the longest speech that Jacob gives in all of Scripture, in all the Bible. And basically, it's just berating his father-in-law. Berating his father-in-law for the way that he's treated him. For the way that he has not, not treated him well. And, 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 dis, and, and given him all sorts of disrespect and disregard. Twenty years of pent-up frustration comes boiling over. Laban then, after Jacob's fiery speech, that really does perfectly well describe his mistreatment, um, that if any sheep or goats miscarried, uh, he did not charge him for it. Uh, if he, he never ate any of the rams, uh, he did not bring any animals torn by wild beasts. He bore the loss himself. Uh, even though Laban demanded payment from whatever was stolen by day or by night, uh, the, the heat consumed him in daytime, the cold at night, slept. Uh, he worked hard. He didn't get much sleep. It was like this for 20 years in my household. I worked for you 14 years for you two daughters, six years for your flocks. And, and we find out that Laban, this, this is what he tried to do to get around Jacob's agreement. He said, they made this agreement about payment, right? Jacob would take these certain kinds of sheep that should be uh, less common. But Laban kept switching Jacob's wages. He'd say, okay, well, you can't have the spotted ones anymore. Now you can have the streaked ones, okay? Well, then the streaked ones would be the ones that would start, you know, multiplying. And he'd say, well, you can't have the, 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 the streaked ones anymore. You can have the flecked ones. And, and this is what Laban did ten times, ten times, trying to keep Jacob from being blessed by God. <laughs> and he couldn't do it. And so, Jacob just is done with it. He's done with it. And Laban, at this point, admits they must part ways. And so he says, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, let it serve as a witness between us. Um, This is what Laban's idea of a covenant essentially is. Um, It's a way to ensure his own protection and covering his own rear end. Laban is saying, we must part ways, but I want to make sure that when I turn around and I'm going back to where I came from, I don't get stabbed in the back. And Jacob is saying the same thing. I want to know that when we part ways and I start heading back towards my homeland, Canaan, that I don't get stabbed in the back. And so we're going to create this pillar, and this pillar basically functions as a barrier. It's a, it's, a, it's a boundary marker, but it's also a marker of memory for the descendants of these two, that they would know and see this and say, um, we made this covenant, we made this agreement, right? Um, and there's actually, um, 
what is often called the Mizpah blessing. Um, in here, because that place where this took place was called Mizpah. And, um, and maybe some of you have even heard this at weddings. Maybe some of you have heard this at um, church services in, in some places. Um, and this is what it says. It says, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. I mean, and this, is some, this is sometimes given as a blessing, um, or a benediction at the end of the service. But unfortunately, that is not how it should be used at all. In fact, it's not a benediction, it's a malediction. This covenant is not a covenant of blessing. This covenant is basically saying, listen, we make the agreement that we will not harm each other, and if we break that agreement, may God himself harm us. It's a warning that God will see and judge the actions of someone the speaker mistrusts. It's an expression not of things ending on good terms between Laban and Jacob, but on rather a shaky truce filled with distrust and fear. Laban here is simply putting into practice this covenant and this oath in order to protect himself. He's expressing his continued selfish and self-centered perspective. Um, Morris once again says, Laban is an unfortunate example of a worldly covetous man one who knows about the true God and to whom a thorough witness has been given. He had seen the reality of God in the life of Jacob. He himself had even enjoyed many of the blessings of God through his relationship to Jacob. Nevertheless, he continued in idolatry and covetousness, seeking material gain for himself to the exclusion of all other considerations. Rather than seeking to follow the truth of God's plan as witnessed by Jacob, he merely resented and coveted the blessing of God on Jacob. He finally ended up with neither. His life constitutes a sober warning to a great host of semi-religious but fundamentally self-worshipping and self-seeking men and women today. In fact, uh, what Morris says here reminds me often of the warning given to us in Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author of the book of Hebrews speaks to People who are part of the covenant community and who experience the blessing of the covenant community, but who never put their faith and trust in the covenant, in the covenant God and Jesus Christ. And these are very powerful words, and it's words that we should consider um, if we are to continue on in faithfulness to God. Um, that it is true that there are those who are in this category of people who enjoy the blessings of the God of Jacob, but who want nothing to do with the God of Jacob. Hebrews chapter 6 says this in verse 4, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and of subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be born, burned. Don't be like Laban, who enjoyed his association with the covenant of God because it gave him blessings, but who did not chose, choose to participate in 
the covenant. Choose to put his faith in the covenant God. You see, the world will have its labans come and go. We'll encounter many on our faith journey, but it's better to be a Jacob, even if it means being despised and looked down upon by those in the world. It's better to be a Jacob because he has his eyes locked on the destination during the journey. He has his eyes locked on what God has called him to do. He is seeking, even in his small faith, to present himself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him, and trying, seeking to know what God's will is for his life, and pursue that. Jacob is on the move. He is leaving the household of Laban and going back to the promised land of Canaan, the land in which God has promised to give to him and to his descendants. He has his eyes locked on the destination during the journey. He's returning home. He's heading to the promised land because that's where he must go in order to remain inside the will of God, in order to pursue what God has called him to. And so Jacob here gives us an example of what it means to uh, uh, fearfully pursue God's will for our lives, seeking to discern God's will for our lives, and then when we know God's will for our lives, actually doing that. Um, Even if it... uh, means it it might be risky, even if it means there might be loss involved, even if it means there is a sacrifice, right? Um, But uh, the other three truths that I talked about from God's perspective can be seen here as well. Uh, Throughout this journey, uh, Jacob is preserved by God. We see that uh, Jacob could have been harmed, but what happened? God intervened by coming to Laban in a dream and saying, do not speak of Jacob, bad or good. And Laban said, I could harm you. I could kill you. I could bring harm against you, but I'm not going to because God has spoken to me, right? God is preserving Jacob because Jacob belongs to him. God has provided for Jacob. Jacob left his hometown, left his household of his father and his mother because he was worried that his brother would seek to kill him. Esau would seek to kill him. And so Jacob took a small journey off to Laban's household, thinking he'd find a wife and come uh, skipping back. And what he ends up doing is spending 20 years in a foreign land, picking up not just one wife, but two. That's not an endorsement, just clearly stating the obvious. And along with that, uh, a multitude of children um, that has just exponentially grown. His family has grown, and his wealth has grown. Laban sought to make things difficult for Jacob, but every time Laban changed God's, uh, uh, Jacob's wages, God made things happen so that Jacob would come away a wealthy man, a provided man with a great family and household. This is the beginning of what God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would be a great nation, that they would be a nation that blesses the other nations, right? So God is providing, but also God is guiding Jacob back to Canaan, right? Back to Canaan. But there is um, a more sweeping, big narrative that could be described here that's important for us to see. Because the seeds of this story are already beginning to echo through. And that is that what you see here in the life of Jacob is a precursor to what his descendants are going to experience in the land of Egypt. If you hear in this story, Genesis 31, you can hear a lot, a lot of the themes of the story of the Exodus. That Jacob went to a foreign land where he was mistreated, where he was, in essence, 
a slave, where those who enslaved him mistreated him and made it difficult for him, that God heard his cry, the cry of his people, that God came and brought justice in a situation where he was being a recipient of injustice. And God came and said, you must go, you must leave. And there was an escape, but there was also uh, a group that was seeking to come after, right? And to, and to, to bring back, just like Pharaoh's armies sought after uh, Israel after they left. But God protected them, God intervened. And it's important that we see um, this Exodus story, because if we're going to, to know big scale upper story that God um, preserves, provides, and guides for those that are his, then what we see in Jacob's story in his personal family life, also seen in the story of Exodus, um, the escape from uh, Egypt of the people of Israel, is really actually a revelation of God's preserving, providing, and guiding us in Jesus Christ. Because if there is one thing that I could point to that says there is something that's in common between the story of Jacob's exodus and Israel's exodus. It's that even though God intervened and God brought about a redemption in, in a sense, that God saved them out of those foreign lands, that God brought them out of those places to the land that he had promised, right? They still held on to their idols. Rachel, she still thinks in some fashion that in order to be provided for, in order to be cared for, she must not look to the God of her uh, husband, Jacob. She must look to these little tiny idols that are so small that she can hide them under her bottom. And we'll find, too, that when the people of Israel leave Egypt, even though God... Uh, preserved them while they were in Egypt through the, the, uh, the ten, um, why did I just forget what those were? Curses? Plagues, thank you. Maybe that's because that's a word we don't say anymore. Uh, God pre- preserved them through the ten plagues even though God provided for them. Because as they were leaving Egypt, all they had to do was go to their neighbors and say, give me all the gold you got. And that's exactly what happened. Even though God guided them through the wilderness into the promised land, even though it took longer than it should have, they kept the idols. They kept the idols. There's a note about how many of the Israelites... And their escape from Egypt not only took the gold, but they brought the gods. And we see this in the golden calf moment at the, at the base of Mount Sinai. We see this continue and perpetuate into the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. They kept the gods because they, they turned away from the, the one true God and they pursued these other gods, these false gods, these idols, right? And so it doesn't matter that there was an exodus or a redemption in, in Genesis through the, the family of Jacob. It doesn't matter that God did this redemption through the people of Israel. There was a greater redemption that we needed and it was a redemption that from slavery to sin. 
from slavery to sin. You see, it didn't matter how many times Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh could do nothing of Israel's problem with sin. And so what God is doing here in the Bible, in the grand narrative of the Bible, is that he is showing us that God is going to bring a redemption. A redemption from the tyranny, uh, not of Laban, the tyranny, not of Pharaoh, the tyranny of the devil. That God is going to pay for us, redeem us from slavery not to Laban, from slavery not to the people in Egypt, but slavery to sin. Because our redemption and our freedom from sin is the freedom that we really need. It's the redemption that we really need because it's the redemption that results in our entire salvation. Not simply from circumstances outwardly, but eternally. Our whole lives are changed. So how does God preserve, provide, and guide, for, and guide us? Ultimately, he does this in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. It is in Jesus Christ that God gives us this promise that even though we still struggle with sin, even though we still fight sin, even though we still battle sin, in Romans chapter 8, we are told that we will, we will make it, we will. There's nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God. Why is that the case? Why is that the case that we're told this promise? What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is why we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're preserved in Christ. We're provided for in Christ. And in Christ Jesus, our union to Christ Jesus, we are guided from this foreign land that we live in now called this broken and cursed world until ultimately we see the other side of the Jordan, the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus Christ. So my prayer is that this morning you would know the will of God for your life, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. That is your spiritual act of worship, that you may know the will of God. But my prayer also is that you would know the upper story that in Jesus Christ, God has brought about a redemption that preserves you, provides for you, and guides you through life. And that you would unite those true realities, those two realities, um, and pursue it wholeheartedly. And what we call that is, is Christian life, it's Christian living. And we don't do that alone, we do it together in the family of God, in the fellowship of faith. And uh, you're all invited to join us as we take that journey of faith together. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture passage. We thank you for what it 
has taught us. And we pray, Lord, that we would know your will for us and that we would know also, Lord, how you are orchestrating all things through Jesus Christ, preserving, providing, and guiding us. And we pray, Lord, that we would make it knowing that you are faithful to bring us to the end of our journey and the beginning of our life eternal in the hereafter. It's in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. We stand and sing with me, Psalter Hymnal 3.